the old pilot's plane tale. RAF Form 414, Volume 5. Back by popular demand, a reading from my Form 414, the RAF document that's issued to every RAF pilot to become a permanent and legal record of their flying service. I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger with my imminent deployment to the island of Cyprus, the land of milk, honey and cochineli. Preparations for the fabled six-week deployment in the sun began early, as those who had been before began to regale us gunnery virgins with stories of this fabled land. It seemed to be a combination of the lost city of Atlantis and Valhalla, all wrapped up in one. Not only was it wrapped up in much traditional coming-of-age feats, it seemed to bear a mystical quality that would send the most hard-nosed and grisly pilot's eyes into a distant gaze and a tear might creep down a craggy cheek as they remembered times past. Whilst the squadron high-ups worried about the difficult stuff like which jets to take, most of them, how many spares they would need, lots, and how to get from a base in Scotland to an island the far end of the Mediterranean Sea some 3,000 miles away, fraught with terror, the rest of us got on with the day-to-day -day flying. Fully operational now, I was doing my regular stints on QRA. Three live launches in a week and no intercepts, I began to feel like a Jonah, and then the Lady Isabel Barnett, sorry Yanks, a very British joke, and I hunted down a four-ship of bears in the darkness, ploughing their way through the Iceland Pharaoh's Gap. I duly added three bear foxtrots and a bear delta to my count. Night added a very different perspective to a QRA intercept, as we were still expected to come back with an accurate identification of our targets and get their airframe numbers painted on the nose-wheel doors. This required a tricky bit of flying. Formating on the wingtip, we would slide down a little and then follow the wing along towards the fuselage, remembering to stay away from those mighty NK-12 turboprop engines with their eight-bladed contra-rotating propellers, each with a diameter of 18 feet, that's 5.6 metres. Having positioned ourselves underneath the bear's fuselage with just the reflection from our fin-mounted anti-collision beacon, um, never was it more aptly named, to illuminate our way and with our heads craned back to keep sight of the monster above us, we would creep forward until the door and the apparently vital number came into sight. It's a good job they didn't write it in Cyrillic. On days when the beacon just wasn't bright enough to do the job, a quick tap of the afterburners and I could light the world up. As we accelerated past, the nav would grab the number and then we would pop out in front in full blower. What the hell the Soviet bear pilots thought we were up to was anyone's guess. 
In between all this QRA fun, it was time for my annual instrument rating test, under the stern and watchful eyes of our squadron QFI, Jabel. I forget all the tortuous machinations that he employed, but some are embedded in my memory. Whilst under the hood, a plastic cover attached to my helmet, which prevented any peeking at the real world, John would cry, "'Heads down!' and then twist and turn the phantom inside out until my personal semicircular canals were well and truly spinning. Then with a shout of, "'Heads up! You have control!' he would expect some action from yours truly. I would be given the aircraft in one of many ridiculous attitudes that would require quick action to recover back to straight and level." The extreme nose-high ones might need full reheat, a roll inverted on instruments, a pull down to the horizon and then a roll back right side up before he would grab the aircraft again and we would repeat the exercise. Then might come the Chinese weave. I have no idea why the Chinese were branded with this particular torture, but the pilot would be expected to follow a continuous stream of demands from the back seat supposedly to simulate a demented navigator's instructions, of turns, climbs, descents, and speed changes of increasing difficulty. Descents or climbs came with a particular rate, turns with the need for increasing angles of bank up to and beyond 60 degrees, often with reversals and speed changes that might need full afterburner or idle and full speed brake. John's area of expertise was to get at least three events to happen all at once. Having worked up a good sweat, it was then time to do a practice diversion, followed by many instrument approaches, including the dreaded ILS. Now, the instrument landing system had been around for a while in the civil world, but not so in the military. Ground control approaches were the order of the day where skilled air traffic controllers would use the precision approach radar system to torque an aircraft down. The ILS was an add-on, and in the Phantom it was a small instrument, about the size of a watch face, with nothing but a pair of white needles with a few white dots scattered around. No flight directors to help, no autopilot, and I for one was never keen to use it. I much preferred the soothing voice of a PAR controller guiding me down through the Scottish gloop until magically at a couple of hundred feet the glow of the runway lights would appear through the har, the local name for fog. The ILS needed much more, and now I needed to scan this little half-crown-sized instrument and interpret it. I had to decide how big a heading change to make to recapture the deviating localizer, work out for myself how much drift I needed to apply to stay on the center line. I had to think about the headwind and decide what rate of descent would be required to stay on the glide path. When I started this game, my first proper instrument rating was colored amber, so I had to add 300 feet to the approach minimum. Then came white, which took me to 200 feet of a normal decision height, and finally the green rating. That allowed the bearer the honour of going all the way down to decision height. To be operational, I had to fly to green limits, and luckily Jabel was in good humour that day. Phew. 
Then I was off again, this time doing intercepts on a Bristow's helicopter, who had offered himself as a target as he clattered his way from Aberdeen out to the North Sea oil rigs. As I completed the intercept, I tried to get back to his speed and formate on him, so dropped the gear and full flaps. It was never going to happen, but at least we didn't hurtle past him at the speed of heat, and had time to wave at a few anxious-looking faces in the back. The trouble came when I tried to raise the gear again. Something in the world of micro-switches went haywire, and the nose-wheel started banging up and down inside the nose-wheel bay, making the most awful racket. Nothing much ado, but put it all back down again, and crawl home below 250 knots. A couple more QRA intercepts, a bare foxtrot and a delta, and then the deployment was on us. Cyprus, here we come. So, dear listener, I can imagine you thinking that I leapt into my mighty phantom, pointed the nose south, and roared off into the distance. Not so, I'm afraid. I packed up my flying gear, tossed it all in the back of an old C-130 Hercules, along with piles of engineering essentials, hoochins, spares, gun pods, and the rest of the paraphernalia that would be needed, noted where the chemical toilet was, found myself a webbing seat, and settled in for the long and slow 3,000-mile drone to our airfrack criteri, our destination. On the way, I watched with growing envy at those who had done this journey before. Once in the cruise, they hooked up hammocks from the securing points around the cargo hold and comfortably swayed their way to Cyprus, looking like extras from the movie Cocoon, whilst my webbing seat became more and more uncomfortable. The monotony was only broken by the magical appearance of a plastic sack full of cardboard boxes containing rations for the seven-hour flight, a few curly sandwiches and a chicken leg. Such was the lot of the junior pilot. When we eventually touched down and taxied to Alpha Dispersal, where the squadron's phantoms were neatly lined up, the Herc's rear ramp dropped and the intoxicating smell of cypress met us on a waft of hot air, a heady mixture of tropical plants, the sea, and aviation fuel. Our annual armament practice camp was a well-hidden secret. This was where, every year, we strapped a pod which contained a six-barreled, 20mm, M61 Vulcan cannon onto the aircraft and spent six weeks gunning our hearts out over the med. RAF Akrotiri was on one of two sovereign base areas on the island, which were retained by the United Kingdom when Cyprus was granted independence in 1960. They have proved to be vitally important as strategic bases close to the troubled areas of the Middle East, and back in the 70s the regular deployment of RAF squadrons was a way to ensure that we could be seen to retain a military presence in the area. The weather was also great, which guaranteed that we could accomplish everything we needed within a relatively short period. 
In addition, our presence bolstered the UN peacekeeping force that had been present on the island since the Turkish invasion in 1974, separating the Cypriot Greeks to the south, where we were, from the Turks in the north. None of that really mattered to me, as I had found Nirvana, Eden, Paradise, Telalokan, Folkvanger, the fields of Aru, Vaikantha, Tiananog, Elysium, Cocaine, here on earth. It was warm, something I had forgotten existed after moving to Scotland, and there were brandy sours. Nowhere in the world can they make a brandy sour like they did in the officer's mess at RAF Akrotiri. When work finished and everyone jumped into the rattly APC vans, we would screech up to the bar, and there they would be, lined up by the dozen. It was a simple drink that was so difficult to get right that no matter how many times we tried when we returned home, it remained as elusive as the nature of love. And then it was time to head downtown for a meze and a bit of first-night madness. A fast black would be summoned, a large Mercedes taxi, the price negotiated, and we would hurtle off in a cloud of dust to arrive at a magical spot in the local town, Limassol, or Limassol, as it was oft-named. Not the tourist trap it is now, but a quiet town full of local flavour. Little open-air, family-run restaurants lit by twinkling fairy lights, woven around pergolas covered in grapevines, and hardly a hotel or nightclub to be found. We crowded round a long table for a fifteen-course meal of local specialities. Huge bowls of salad, roughly cut up with tomatoes as big as cannonballs, crumbly feta cheese, pita bread, tzatziki, tahini, hummus, capers, olives, wild asparagus, tiny kebab sausages, enormous pork chops that must have come from pigs the size of elephants. It went on and on, and all the time the wheels of comradeship amongst us were oiled with free bottles of cochinelli. This is best described as a rough village wine, dark and red, decanted from an enormous barrel and served to the table in anything from soda bottles to kitchen bleach containers. But never before had something that came out of a Domestos bottle tasted so good. Apart from the odd grape stalk and a hangover that was as vicious as a kick from a mule, it was pure nectar. When we stumbled out, our fast blacks would be patiently waiting for us to take us back to the base, whilst we serenaded the unfortunate driver with a never-ending stream of unsavoury songs that are still fresh in my memory. After a few rounds of flaming zambukas, it would be back to our sleeping blocks, famously decorated in squadron artwork from the dozens of units who had slept and puked in the same beds before. The Batman would wake us up early, with tea strong enough to melt the silver off the spoons, and it was time for work. The first thing I would have to get was some tropical kit, 
the heavy woolen uniform wasn't really suitable for Cyprus in the summer, and I was very fortunate that Her Majesty had been kind enough to realise this, and gifted me a tropical uniform allowance to purchase what I needed. Even though the drinks in the mess were duty-free and scandalously cheap, I knew that at the end of six weeks I was going to run up quite a bill. I weighed up the cost of a tropical mess kit for dinners, number six tropical dress for formal occasions and working dress, all in khaki drill, and decided that I would probably get away with a pair of shorts, long socks and a short-sleeved shirt, and throw in a pair of cheap local desert boots. The rest of my allowance would go towards a much more worthy cause. The van pitched up to drag us from Block 101 down to Alpha Dispersal at an ungodly hour. To avoid the worst of the heat, we started early and finished before the aircraft became too hot for the poor engineers to work on easily. For us, it was time to sit down in a lecture room, whilst the weapons instructors gave us briefing after briefing on what we were here to accomplish. Lots of safety lectures, this gun could be dangerous in the wrong hands, and there were a few, like me, whose enthusiasm was boundless, but not even closely matched by skill. We were here to obtain our ACE, Allied Command Europe, qualification at air to air gunnery. Our targets were large white banners towed by long-suffering Canberra crews from 100 Squadron. Within six shoots, we had to achieve at least two scoring 15% or more. Get too close to the banner, inside the minimum range and your score would be zero. Shoot with too small an angle and risk hitting the camera and your score would be zero. The skill was one of many that made a good fighter pilot. It had been since the first days that scout pilots took to the air. Heroes were made of those who could gun down their opponents, and even in the days of deadly missiles, if you came back from a training combat mission with a gun's kill, eyebrows would be raised. It sorted the men from the boys, and I was going to be tested. I'd never tried this before, and I was the most junior pilot on the squadron. My nerves were jangling as I tried to absorb all that was going on, and before I knew it, the armourers were winding the guns full of shells. The aircraft arm signs were all around the dispersal, and I was climbing into my F-4. How I got on? Well, that's for next week. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.